As I often do, I draw your attention to the words that you just sang. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. And there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Uh, It's worth noting two things. One, the place. When I stand in glory, it's language of location. It's language of place. It's described as a holy place. The second thing is not there. But I want to ask you, what is it that makes a place glorious and holy? And is it strictly future? Or is it now? And if it's now, where do we see it? That's related in a way to our continuing series through Isaiah in our particular passage in front of us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 57 and beginning with verse 14, you can go to the Psalms and turn right and walk a couple blocks and you'll find Isaiah chapter 57 beginning with verse 15, excuse me, verse 14. Through the last number of falls, we've been working through a series in Isaiah, and I recognize that it's rather frustrating for some of you that some of the passages get repeated, Um, but I find that every time I revisit a passage, um, I discover new dimensions of God's amazing grace in them. Um, I am not able to take it all in at one pass. And so just to kind of get us up to speed through the record of his ministry for us recorded in this book we call Isaiah, the record of Isaiah's ministry in Israel, especially his interactions with Ahaz at the beginning of that ministry and Hezekiah at the end of that ministry separated by almost 40 years, Isaiah has demonstrated the problem of our stubborn and steadfast rebellion. I wished that he hadn't, but alas, he did. It is worth noting in this case that Isaiah's diagnosis was itself quite offensive and so was violently opposed. In fact, Tradition suggests that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, for the diagnosis at the heart of Isaiah's message. His diagnosis, however, wasn't the very center, wasn't the, well, crux of his message. It presented the necessary backdrop for really understanding the message the latter half of Isaiah's book is focused on the, so what I call the double comfort of the holy God's entirely unexpected and unimaginable plan to address the problem that Isaiah had diagnosed. Our natural expectation 
is that when faced with such a problem, a holy God would simply destroy the traitor. This is assuredly what happens with the ancient human kings. Even good ones behaved this way. It only seems natural, we reason, to expect that a holy God of justice would behave in the same way. Which is one of the reasons that we fear the diagnosis. But that is not what happens. Rather than destroying us, which is the comfort of his restraining mercy, he actually works to cultivate in us a heart for obedience, which is the comfort of his abounding grace. And so makes his own peace in his own world in the very midst of his own enemies. It really is a stunning thing. It's a mind-bending thing. It's a soul-bending thing. It's a soul-transforming thing. In looking at it from this vantage point, then, we have seen, as we've been looking um, this year, in this uh, fall, over the last ten chapters, we have seen that in the end, God himself will establish his peace by his justice. And that God's peace will not be a mere localized peace among a small, select group of people who share like passions, like we might find in a small town off in the mountains somewhere, but it will be a cosmic and comprehensive peace encompassing a worldwide people of which, brothers and sisters, we are a visible and vital part, not in theory, but in reality. Such peace we saw, will come by understandings, what we saw last week. This week we see that it comes by repentance. And next week, my prayer is that we will see that it comes by the disciplines and habits of delight. So read with me Isaiah chapter 57, beginning with verse 14. It shall be said... Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle, excuse me, every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I, ha- that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, so I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. But the wicked 
are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is good news to us, his people. Let's go to him in prayer. So, Father, we come to this, your word at this in, at this point in your hour that you have set aside, and we pray that by your Spirit you would grant us courage to see and to hear and to believe, and so be changed. Protect us from error. Feast us upon the glories of your truth, for we pray it as children in Jesus. Amen. You ever found yourself just screaming out, I just want some peace! Some peace and quiet. I got sound canceling um, headphones recently. <laughs> and the problem with them, they're really great because they really do cancel out the sound that is out there. Sadly, they don't cancel out the sound that rings in your ears or in your heart or in your mind. We hunger and we thirst to live at peace but find ourselves more often struggling to hold together the pieces of a fragmented life. Fragmented schedules, fragmented responsibilities, fragmented and fragmenting relationships. As Alec Moyer observes in his comments on Isaiah's ministry during the day, on, uh, comments on Israel during the days of Isaiah's ministry, the ideal of Israel's calling is mocked by the persistent reality of Isaiah of Israel's life. I get that. Perhaps you do too. In the most current edition of Comment magazine, Jonathan Chaplin, no relation to Chaplin's we know here that I know of. Is there any relation? I don't think so observes the same thing. He says, We seem to live our lives not in peace, but in pieces. We accumulate hundreds of friends on Facebook, but find it hard to sustain enduring friendships marked by loyalty and care. We turn up to our daily workplaces, but have little sense of how, if at all, our assigned tasks or the products or services we help supply contribute to any wider public good. We turn out to vote in elections, but are rarely able to grasp how or if the fulfillment of that lone civic duty in any way builds solidarity and justice for wider society. This is one of the primary themes of Senator Ben Sasse's forthcoming book on the state of our life together in these United States, which is entitled, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. in which he uses the notion of rebuilding our nation's, quote, social infrastructure as a stand-in for what Scripture calls shalom. The flourishing of human relationships and responsibilities in this world as God has designed it, as God intends it, and indeed as God is about the work of redeeming it. Toward the end of his review and comments on Sassy's book, in an essay entitled America's Epidemic of Loneliness, George Will comments, Repairing America's physical infrastructure 
although expensive, is conceptually simple involving steel and concrete. Listen. The crumbling of America's social infrastructure presents, however, a daunting challenge. For we do not know how to develop what Sassy wants. New habits of mind and heart, new practices of neighborliness. The title of Sassy's book, however, promises that he will at least suggest a way forward toward healing and rebuilding that social infrastructure. Is it true, as George Will suggests, that we don't know how to develop what Sassy wants? Is it true that the best we can hope for is to hang in there until it's all over? If it's not true, if what Will says is not true, then can we identify practical steps, practical attitudes and habits, practical postures and practices that would indeed move us toward healing as a nation, as a city, as a community, as a family, as a married couple? We have been suggesting that the peace of God, which scripture calls shalom, comes by the justice of God. It comes by understanding. And as we see today, it will come by repentance. The peace of God for which we long comes, brothers and sisters, by repentance. Repent. John the Baptist said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, Jesus said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. The humble and contrite recognition of our condition in our circumstances and turning from that. It sounds so easy. (laughs) Just repent. Just look at yourself honestly and feel the weight of your sin and repent. But of course, having said that, we almost immediately encounter a problem, not an objection, we might add, but an objective obstacle in the way of our repentance. Namely, We are incapable of the sort of attitudes and habits that constitute repentance. We are incapable of the humble and contrite repentance, which is a necessary condition for entering the peace for which we long, for which we have been created, and to which we have been called. As some have said it, We are so poor at this thing called repentance that we have to repent of our repentance. And on those few times when we think that we have actually gotten it right, we have to repent of our righteousness as well. (laughs) The wormhole goes deep. 
So perhaps George Will is right. Perhaps we really don't know how to repair our social infrastructure. We've tried and fallen short. What hope is there if we are incapable of the very thing necessary for the only thing for which we long and for which we were created? Are we doomed, as some suggest, that God has cruelly concluded, to simply remain in our miserable condition and make the best of it? But to paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, brothers and sisters, the gospel has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and costly and so left untried. Let's watch as this unfolds for us. The first half of 57, Isaiah has indicted Israel with a focus upon their leaders for their steadfast, habitual idolatry and adultery in their pursuit of the world's wisdom and the world's power. But we learn at the last half of verse 13 that he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Who is this he? And verse 14 opens with this double command. Build up, build up. There's an urgency. Build up, build up. Prepare the way. Build a highway to this place of God's glory, of God's dwelling, of God's holiness. Build up, build up this, this way. Make it smooth. Remove every obstruction so that those with whom God will delight to dwell can come. We've seen these highways before. Most beautifully, we've seen it in Isaiah chapter 35, the so-called highway of holiness. Who are those, according to our text, who will travel along this highway to dwell with this God? Verse 15 tells us, I dwell in the high and holy place and mind-bendingly also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Those, to use language from another part of the Bible, who are poor in spirit and find themselves mourning for their condition in their circumstances. You see, the place of peace is where God delights to dwell with the lowly and contrite. God's dwelling with, in verse 15, is the centerpiece. It is the beating heart. It is the burning center of God's glory and of God's shalom. It is Emmanuel, God with us. Make note of that, those of you who have your Bibles are open and are making notes. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Behold the glory of Emmanuel. 
But we're presented with the problem that we have already identified and that Isaiah has identified through much of his ministry. And that is this, that there are no such people. There are no lowly and contrite people. This is the point that Isaiah, Isaiah has been demonstrating throughout the first half of his book. It's the point that Isaiah reiterates in the first half of chapter 57. And this is the point that even our text makes in verse 17. Because of, his, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face, but was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. The language there smacks of intentionality and, habit, and, and habit. The scripture describes elsewhere as this elsewhere as doing what is right and pleasing in our own eyes. It feels right. It feels authentic. How could it be any different? Verse 18 says that our God sees this. It's visible. It's objective. It's audible, sound, it's audible words and visible habits that reveal the condition of hearts that are not humble and contrite. So given what he sees and given what he knows and we are slowly beginning to understand, namely that there is none who is lowly in spirit and no, none who is contrite, no, not one, what's a holy God to do? If this is the sort of person that such a God delights to dwell with, namely contrite and lowly in spirit, and since there are no such people, then what's a God to do? One option is the option of most ancient kings, and that is simply to destroy them. Or he could look, he could see, and he could conclude that since there are none, he must heal. He must restore. He must recreate. He must cultivate this condition of contrition and humility. Note, this, is the, this was the goal of verse 17. Because of his iniquity, the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, so I struck him. That's not very loving, is it? I hid my face from him. That's not very loving, is it? And he says again, I was angry, but I thought you loved us. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that it is because of his great love for us that he expresses his anger? It is because of his great love for us that he struck. It is because of his great love for us that he hid his face so as to draw us back to himself. It is not loving to pretend that we're not as lost as we are. But 
The problem is this, that if he continued along that line to the extent of our rebellion, then we would be destroyed. Verse 16, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Why? Because the spirit and the breath of life that I made would grow faint. It would be destroyed. And so something has to happen where this God doesn't just keep responding to our stubborn ways, but somehow he has to get in front of the wave. He has to get ahead of the curve. And he has to meet us before our sin takes us to its logical conclusion. We see a similar pattern unfolding for us on the, and expressed from the receiving side in Matthew's account of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Why? Those don't sound like blessings. They're blessings of a holy God who is cultivating in us a hunger and a thirst for His righteousness, for His desires, for the things He delights in, not the things that we delight. Few of us fill our times, our time with things that, with things that we don't enjoy. But sadly, we often find ourselves filling our time and our lives with things that we enjoy, but which in fact are deadly. I cannot tell you how many times I have encountered people who are pursuing this hobby and that hobby or another hobby while their marriages were falling falling apart. Have you considered that perhaps doing that is what's destroying your marriage? Oh, no, pastor, that can't possibly be because I enjoy it. I see. Idolatry and adultery, brothers and sisters, is enjoyable in the moment, but it is deadly. You see, his discipline is carefully calibrated by his loving attentiveness to our own frailty. And so I will not contend forever. I will not always be angry because he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we are frail. Contrary to the popular worship song, brothers and sisters, God's passions are not out of control. They are not reckless but they are carefully calibrated by his steadfast and tender love. This is what scripture has in view whenever it speaks of God's steadfast mercy, as in the case of Psalm 136, worthy of your attention today. So how does he heal then? Well, the first movement of his healing is his restraint. This is God's mercy. I will not contend forever. I will, nor will I always be angry. Although I'm justified in that, I will not. Why? Because he knows our frailty. Brothers and sisters, this is his mercy. This is, his, this is him restraining himself because of his great love for us. He restrains us. But he also then works in us so as to redirect us. Boy, that is frustrating. Gosh, I hate it when he does that during my weeks and my days. 
I set out this way and he redirects my paths for his glory and that I might know the full dimensions of his glory in my life. Darn it. Stop redirecting. Let me do what I want. I thought you loved me. I do love you. And so let me redirect you in the paths that lead to life. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him. I will not follow him. I will lead him. I will direct his ways. But then he restores us. I will lead him and restore to him comfort. I will restore to him. And so he restrains his anger because of his great love and he redirects our paths in order that he might restore us and restore what does that restoration look like and sound like? Well, it actually creates the fruit of lips where we read elsewhere is in fact the praises of our God. Because you see, brothers and sisters, you understand that the peace of God is in beholding the glory of God and singing the praises of God. Do you understand why an all-wise and an all-loving God would sanctify one day a week for us, fallen people in a fallen world, to gather in his presence, to behold his glory, to sing his praises? Because, brothers and sisters, that's the way of peace. It's the way of, of ceasing from our frantic and frenetic labors and resting in his presence together and beholding his glory. And in that we find rest. And so that now there is this double blessing of peace, peace to the far and to the near. And yet we see that nonetheless there are those who are like a tossing sea that cannot be stilled or quieted. I'm often amazed at how instantaneously, at least as it's recorded for us in the Gospels, the sea became still upon Jesus' command. And the reason that amazes me is because my heart is much smaller than that sea. And it takes hours sometimes, sometimes days, sometimes weeks to be stilled at the voice of my Lord. What is it? There are those who are so stubbornly committed to the wisdom and power of this world that they insist that the ways of God would deprive them of what they so deeply hunger and thirst for. What is the end of the matter? Is there anything that can be done in a world at war that seems to be coming to pieces? George Will suggests that we don't know how to do it. But brothers and sisters, we do. That's what we are here for. Because the living God, as revealed to us in the 57th chapter of Isaiah, is in fact making peace. And that's why we're here. 
By faith, we recognize the fingerprints of a holy God at work by his spirit in our circumstances, in our relationships, in our responsibilities to soften hearts, to bend knees, to still and silence our frantic pursuits of the world's wisdom and power that we may dwell with him with contrite and lowly spirits. So be still and know that I am God. I have called you. I have promised. I am faithful. And I will do it. Let's go to him in prayer. So Father, we come.